This is Inside Geneva. I'm your host, Imogen Folks, and this is a Swissinfo.ch production. From the world's humanitarian capital, we explore the challenges facing our planet. Whether it's migration or climate change, human rights or global health, I'll be taking you behind the scenes for some straight talk with the people facing up to those challenges. Hello and welcome to Inside Geneva. I'm your host, Imogen Folks. Today we're going to look at one of the big beasts of the United Nations. Not the United States, not Russia, but China. First, a little bit of history about China's road to UN membership. President, the United States will vote against the resolution Communist China does not meet the requirements clearly set out in Article 4 of the Charter for participation in this organization. We have all present in our minds the terms of the resolution adopted on the 25th of October 1971 by which the General Assembly decided to restore to the People's Republic of China all of its rights and to recognize the representatives of its government as the sole legitimate representatives of China in the United Nations. So as we heard there, China only became formally a member in 1971 and in the intervening years has slowly but surely started to play a major role in the United Nations. Well, here to discuss that, I have Meg Davis, China Watcher and member of staff at Geneva's Graduate Institute. I have Sarah Brooks of the International Service for Human Rights and, of course, Daniel Warner, our expert analyst and sometimes devil's advocate. Now, Daniel, I'm actually going to come to you first because you have literally just written an article about China's role. China's looking to fill some big shoes at the UN. Well, the article begins by saying the United States seems to be withdrawing its leadership role, which was always traditional, and that there is a vacuum. And as I looked at the vacuum... I saw that it was being filled by China, being head of various organizations now. But it does seem to me that leadership is important. The United States was obviously one of the founders of the system, the multilateral system, and with the Trump administration downplaying multilateralism, there is that vacuum, and it seems to be filled to some extent by China. Whether on purpose or not, I can't tell. Meg, let's turn to you. We introduced you, of course, as a long-time China watcher. Now, in recent years, China has assumed the lead at the International Telecommunications Union, the uh, UN's Food and Agricultural Organization, didn't succeed just this week with the World Intellectual Property Organization. How do you see China's, or how do you analyse China's move up through the UN ranks? I think it's an interesting challenge for China because after Xi Jinping's big speech or a series of speeches in 2017 in which he expressed a commitment to globalization, to multilateralism, to the community of shared future for humanity, um, as you say, uh, China has assumed the leadership of, of four UN agencies and is also chairing 
the uh, Program Coordinating Board of UNAIDS, which is the agency that coordinates the UN response to HIV epidemic. Um, but I think China is in many respects still kind of finding their feet in the UN system. It's not always very clear that diplomats and civil society, people who represent China in these spaces, in, in health at least, are comfortable speaking uh, off the record, speaking off the script, or feel empowered to negotiate or, or form the kind of personal connections that you really need in Geneva to push an agenda. Is that your experience, Sarah, with the International Service for Human Rights? I think I would agree. I do want to add that um, China has one more role, which is very important inside the Secretariat. There has been um, a standing position as Under Secretary General, um, which has been held by former Chinese um, ambassadors and high-level diplomatic officials in New York. Um, so both the agencies as well as inside the UN Secretariat, we do see um, an investment that China is making in ensuring that people have positions. I think Meg's point is is fantastic in saying what what is China also investing to ensure that people have the capacity to exercise power and influence in those positions in a way that's in accordance with UN principles. You talk about investment. Um, let's hear a little bit about uh, some of China's other investment. The Belt and Road Initiative is China's ambitious plans for economic integration on a massive scale. The land belt runs from China through South and Central Asia into Europe while the Maritime Road connects coastal Chinese cities with Africa and the Mediterranean. The reach is vast. That's, of course, the Belt and Road Initiative. Billions being invested in this. And I think we need to look at this, you know, with a fairly cold but balanced view. I mean, an awful lot of money, which many people in Africa, perhaps, or in Central Asia would say, well, you know what, this is great. We shouldn't forget that China is, on paper, the world's second largest economy. And in the future, it's predicted it will become the largest. Some of this outreach is normal for a country of that size and that power. And China also has an imperial history. So we shouldn't be shocked by the fact that all of a sudden China is acting materially in the Silk and Belt Road. It's acting multilaterally within the UN system. This, to me, is the normal procedure for a country that's growing and has tremendous economic power. A lot of UN agencies and, in fact, the International Committee and the Red Cross have, have jumped uh, quite eagerly into the Belt and Road Initiative, haven't they, Meg? Yeah, I think the Belt and Road Initiative has been China's kind of uh, stepping stone towards greater international engagement. It's a global development strategy, an effort to build a, a China-centered trading network with stronger tra transnational connections, including uh, infrastructure projects, economic areas, super voltage electricity grids, and much more. But a lot of this is built on very much bilateral relationships in which China is using this, these investments to build stronger bilateral partnerships in part to help it balance the power of the U.S. and of other multilateral and transnational agreements. And it's a little bit different from playing a role as a partner and a contributor to multilateral aid. And so, for instance, China was on the board of the Global Fund, is still on the board of the Global Fund, um, but only contributes $18 million dollars. Uh, over the Global Fund's next replenishment, which is the same as it contributed previously. In the past, China got up to a billion um, from the Global Fund, and they certainly could contribute more. 
but they've been a little hesitant to engage in these multilateral mechanisms because they prefer the bilateral approach. I think I would add that and especially highlight that in 2015, Xi Jinping announced an initiative to fund uh, development and peace uh, at the UN to the tune of some $10 billion dollars. But it's very clear that there's one of the UN pillars that's been left out of that, and that's human rights. Despite consistent commitments, um, China has only funded the UN's Human Rights Office some couple hundred thousand over the last 10 years. Um, and that's despite the fact that China has been an active member in the Human Rights Council, that China is really trying to engage and invest more. I think there's an imbalance in where we see those investments going that reflects where the Chinese government is comfortable acting and projecting influence and Meg, power. you wanted to come in there. Yeah, I think those are great points, Sarah. And I, I would just add to that that sometimes I think China's bilateral aid, um, because it doesn't come with human rights and, and accountability measures the way that funding like from the Global Fund and other multilateral agencies comes with, winds up competing in some ways in problematic ways with other aid. Well, in addition, and I do want to play you another uh, little clip here, we have... The UN seemingly welcoming China with open arms. You mentioned Xi Jinping's uh, 2017 world tour where he talked about global governments and multilateralism. Well, here's Antonio Guterres saying, great. This commitment of China to multilateralism is today more necessary than ever. We see a multiplication of conflicts around the world. We see our population growth, climate change, movements of people, food insecurity, water scarcity are combining themselves in a way that creates instability, unrest, and even conflict. This is a moment in which only a global approach can solve global problems. I mean, that is just 100% praise for China. Some people have said to me the UN wants to coax China. Others have rather cynically said, China's got a lot of money and the UN needs it because the US is, is, is slipping away from that. Well, along those lines, I was at a humanitarian conference in Saudi Arabia a couple of years back, and all the male heads of agencies were speaking on the plenary. None of the women, but men were there uh, in force, clearly pitching projects and trying to get funding. And waving their wallets. Mm -hmm. Begging bowls, rather, is what I should say. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, it, it seems to me normal that as a country grows like China with its economy, that it's going to be involved in many different things. If it doesn't have a history of multilateralism, certainly it has, there's a learning curve. And we see in the WTO, the World Trade Organization, the Chinese learning curve has been very quick and very well prepared. Human rights, though, is a situation that poses specific problems for them as the situation with Taiwan. We are going to devote probably the final third of this program to human rights. Um, but since you mentioned learning curve, I wanted to just bring in another uh, area where perhaps we have seen a learning curve. 16 years ago, we had SARS. This year, we have the coronavirus both originated in China. Now, we remember that China was criticised for withholding information about SARS. This time, we can listen to the Director General of the World Health Organization, Dr. Tedros, and his assistant who went to Beijing, Dr. Bruce Aylward, again, full of praise for China. The Chinese government is to be congratulated for the extraordinary measures it has taken to contain the outbreak. We would have seen many more 
cases outside China, and probably does, if it were not for the government's efforts and the progress they have made to protect their own people and the people of the world. In China, I found such a pragmatism. Again, we're still early in this disease, but China's leading the way. A lot of countries have really taken to heart what they've learned from China, what we've been talking about. They're rapidly finding these cases, rapidly containing them, using the principles that uh, China employed. Sarah, should we be happy that the heads of UN agencies from the, or from, from the UN Secretary General down are so publicly effusive? I think there's a shared understanding that sometimes kid gloves are necessary. And engaging with China, I think, really is um, one of those situations in the eyes of many of these high-level officials. Um, I'm consistently surprised by the extent to which it's not enough to recognize actions that should have been taken in accordance with what China has already committed to the international community that it would do, but to see high-level officials going above and beyond to praise those actions. There's a long-standing discussion around the issue of face um, in Chinese culture and how that plays into um, politics uh, at all levels. Um, but I think the concern uh, from, from our side is really that there tends to be a lack of balance, that there tends to be a willingness to praise, but deep hesitation to raise critical questions. Meg, China watcher from the Graduate Institute, you want to come in there? Yeah, I think that the, I'm full of sympathy for my colleagues at WH, at the World Health Organization, sorry, trying to stay away from the acronyms, um, because, of course, they need to cooperate with China urgently in responding to this outbreak. They need China to share information. They need to work with China to uh, learn what practices are working and what are not. Uh, and so the response from the World Health Organization has been to be effusive with praise and not to, I think, really do justice to the very serious human rights issues that have arisen in China's response to the virus, including some of the abuses in quarantine, um, the jailing of whistleblowers, the disappearing of human rights defenders. And I think with health, we really see how China's challenges with human rights at home affect their ability to engage internationally. Because if you don't have a strong civil society response on the ground, that really affects also your ability to engage in these UN spaces and these partnerships too. If we turn that on its head, Danny, because you mentioned the void left by the United States, and there has been a void. We have noticed it a great deal here uh, in Geneva. Now, in the last few weeks, we've seen a different a kind of flanking move by the United States. They tried very hard to stop China getting the lead at the World Intellectual Property Organization and succeeded. But I sense sometimes that now when the United States talks about China, even if they're making a good point, they're kind of mistrusted because the whole Washington attitude towards China is seen as being overly negative. That's an interesting point. And I come back to the notion of civil rights because the Chinese would answer they've taken 400 million people out of poverty and the economic, social and cultural rights have been improved. To come back to the United States, the United States government has appointed Mr. Mark Lambert, who was the formerly involved with North Korea. And his job now is to counter to some extent Chinese influence in these organizations. And I quote a State Department 
spokesperson who said his job is countering the malign influence of the People's Republic of China and others in the UN system. So to some extent, this is not benign neglect. This is actually countering, specifically countering the role of China. Uh, One would hope that the United States would be positive toward the system in general instead of just being negative toward China. Uh, But we will see what this means. Uh, But I do think there is a learning curve on China. But the point about civil rights, the point about human rights, I'm not arguing against that. Well, that brings us, we've heard it. I mean, it must have been mentioned 10 uh, times already during our discussion. Human rights. We cannot have a discussion about China without mentioning human rights. We're going to hear a little bit now about one of the key issues that many people are talking about. We're getting an extremely rare look inside China's controversial internment camps. More than a million Uyghurs and others belonging to various Muslim minority groups are believed to be detained in the Xinjiang region. China calls them thought transformation camps built to prevent extremism from spreading, but reports indicate they're more like prisons. As hundreds of thousands of Muslims disappear into giant secure facilities, China has begun taking a few selected journalists inside. And that is the situation in Xinjiang province and the up to, or maybe even more than, a million members of the Uyghur community theoretically put in re-education camps. Sarah, it seems to be being left to the human rights activists to actually call this out. The the international community, as as, as, as the, the diplomats here in Geneva like to call themselves, are not really doing that much. So I want to give some parts of the UN credit where credit is due. We saw a really strong reaction from the UN Committee on Racial Discrimination in August of 2018, which was the first time the Chinese government had to sit up in front of the world and actually answer questions about what was happening in Xinjiang, about policies that were discriminating against Uyghurs and other Muslim minorities. And the UN handled that, I think, really well at the level of experts who were speaking clearly and there was great press coverage, and it really marked a turning point where all of the media and human rights activists and civil society reports um, were being confirmed and reaffirmed by the concerns that UN experts in human rights law were saying, hey, China, this doesn't seem to be what you said you were going to do. But the member states are a really important voice here. The High Commissioner is a really important voice here. And despite that peak, in the year and a half since, we've seen relatively little. Uh, And I think it is important that when we talk about China at the UN, that we recognize that one of the breaks on what it wants to do is necessarily concerns about what's happening inside. To flip that around, one of the drivers for a lot of Chinese initiatives at the Human Rights Council is about preventing scrutiny of what it does at home. Meg, there hasn't been, as Sarah said, maybe as much discussion about what's going on in Xinjiang province as human rights activists would like. Michelle Bachelet says she's going to go. Well, I think that would be fantastic. Um, but I think there's a real risk always, of course, and the you know, UN human rights experts um, know very well what the challenges and risks are with 
doing these kinds of site visits. So when the special rapporteur on the rights of people in extreme poverty, Philip Alston, went to China, he had an extremely difficult time getting uh, any kind of independent information. He was trailed. People that he spoke to were harassed afterwards. Um, and he's been similarly critical of poverty in the U.S., in the U.K., and many other countries as well. Uh, so he's far from someone who's a China basher. No, they um, don't like him in the U.K. either. No. <laughs> or in the United States. <laughs> they don't like him anywhere. <laughs> so I think the U.N. faces some real challenges. I just want to flag while we're talking about things the U.N. has never spoken about in regards to China, the you know thousands of people who contracted HIV through tainted blood uh, in the late 90s, early 2000s, which no U.N. agency has ever spoken out about. No one in China was ever held accountable. And the person who presided over the cover-up is now presiding over the response to the coronavirus, that's Li Keqiang. So I think uh, the UN has a lot still to figure out in how it manages its relationships with countries like China. Are they edging around something that maybe some Western democracies and, and Western human rights groups have failed to really take on board, which is this very important thing about losing face? China, for example, has come to the UN Human Rights Council with this win-win initiative, which underpinning that is this thing about losing face. We don't like you pointing the finger. And they've got a lot of sympathy from a lot of countries about saying, no, we don't want you naming and shaming. We want dialogue. I mean, that would be all right, Danny, if, if the dialogue went anywhere, I guess. Well, I do say I'm not a China defender here, but given the last epidemic that we saw, SARS, and giving this one, coronavirus, it does seem to me they've been more transparent than they have been before. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, there has been some learning some curve, progress, yeah. right, some progress, whether we want more or whatever. The fact that people from the WHO, World, World Health Organization, were allowed into China, they could say, no, we don't want you interfering in our domestic affairs. So I do think there is a dialogue going on. Is it going fast enough? Are we getting everything we want? Probably not. But again, these yeah, but things... Who's we? Yeah, okay. <laughs> the people who are saying, the, uh, criticizing the human rights in China. I mean, again, the Chinese will say we took 400 million people out of poverty. Let's talk about Philip Alston. Let's talk about poverty in the United States and the United mm. Kingdom. I mean, you could also say that actually it was Chinese people who lifted themselves out of poverty and the government just got out of the way. Um, but I mean, I think, you know, it, you're absolutely right. China has every right to defend itself in these conversations. And I think it's really uh, our loss that we don't have a Chinese representative in this room with us today. I know you tried, Imogen. But, I did try, but yeah, no, we, yeah. we didn't succeed this time. But maybe um, maybe the next time, because I don't think this is a, a subject that's going to go away. Sarah, I know you were practically, you know, across to the other side of the table. You wanted to come in. <laughs> well, no, having, I mean, having come over from the other side of the building where the discussions around the win-win resolution were happening this morning, um, it's something really timely. Um, and I think what's interesting about this is that it does demonstrate to a certain extent the learning curve that Daniel's been talking about. When the Chinese first began to bring initiatives to the council in 2015, 2016, it was a long and arduous process. And it was clear that they were learning by doing. And the council and member states and NGOs were also learning how to, how to understand this, how to engage with China. Is it possible to do it on the same rules as everybody else? And so this year, the win-win resolution is, it looks pretty innocuous. It's about states having good relationships with each other. It's about the value of technical cooperation. 
I'm not going to say those are bad things because they're not. We see the technical assistance work of the UN in the area of human rights being absolutely critical, whether we're talking about Cote d'Ivoire, whether we're talking about Somalia, whether we're talking about Cambodia. The problem is in the balance. This initiative really says the council should do more of this. And by implication, the mm. council should do less of what some will call naming and shaming, but what is squarely in the council's foundational documents, right. and that says addressing human rights situations where they occur. We are almost once again at the end of our program, but I have one final thought, final question. Having been immersed in coverage of the coronavirus and the WHO's, the World Health Organization's relations with China. Over that, I'd like to ask you all, maybe starting with you, Meg, is this episode of this virus combined with social media, the immediacy of information, and the fact that the whole world knows that there were Chinese doctors themselves saying, this is important, we need to do something about it, and the apparently good cooperation between China and the WHO, is this going to be positive for China's role in the world and above all for human rights in China? Or is China going to retreat into its shell? What do you think? Well, I don't think there's any going back. But in terms of, you know, was it going to be helpful for human rights? I think the trend within China has been to consolidate power at the, at the leadership level. It's been to shut down NGOs. It's been to restrict freedom of information. And even more than in the past, we had this brief moment of flowering between like 2002 and 2012 or so, when there was all these NGOs, all this really exciting investigative journalism. And I think that kind of freedom of information would be a huge boon to China right now and to its leadership in, in managing the response to the virus. So I hope that that will be the trend in the future, but there are no indications that I've seen that it's going that way. There was a little uptick, though, mm -hmm. right? I mm -hmm. mean, I think towards the end of January, early February, from Chinese language media and Chinese reporters, we were seeing things that were pushing a bit more the line, um, certainly compared to what we'd seen previously, and were raising concerns about the government's handling of the situation. I think that's not being as promising as it looked, though, as we're now kind of a month out, I think that space was shut down pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. The space of social media has been heavily regulated. Some NGOs say as many as 250 individuals have been sanctioned in some way, shape or form for having spoken out on social media, online, about coronavirus in general, about the government's response. Um, so I think while... There were maybe some bright spots and there, there was a really and, and still is really a robust discussion among Chinese communities in China. I'm not sure that it's going to lead to a more sustained shift away from what Meg's described as a consolidation of power at the highest levels of government. It's, it's just, I was trying to, before we went on air, trying to get myself into the mind of, of a Chinese leader, is that you'd say, we had these whistleblowers and stupidly we harassed them and arrested them. And at the same time, we managed to mobilise hundreds of thousands of health workers loyally mm. to work 18, 20 hours a day to deal with this. We had a population who, by and large, put up with being sealed off in their towns and cities. 
Surely a, a forward-looking leader would say, you know what, I could actually afford to relax a bit. I've got a great few billion people here. Danny. As the oldest person here, <laughs> uh, let me look at time. We began by saying China joined the United Nations in 1971. Mm. What is the learning curve? We're talking about a world power, economic power. We're talking about the Belt and Road, but we're also talking about a former imperial power thousands of years ago. But mm -hmm. we're looking now at learning. So the multilateral system, transparency is very new to them. And I think in 50 years approximately, they've done very well. And therefore, their interest in multilateralism, the fact that they're now more transparent, should not be ignored. There is no way, in my opinion, for China to go back into a shell. Mm -hmm. That's over. Mm -hmm. In the world of globalization, no one except North Korea maybe can live in a shell, and even they have difficulty. So I think there is a definite change that's going on, and this particular epidemic may be the Archimedean point that will open up a whole series of things. This is not ping pong, but it's something different. Right, I'm going to give the last word to Sarah because you got your hand up. I think I would agree. China is not going to retreat. They're not going to go back into a shell. Their commitment to multilateralism is one that's been made at the highest level repeatedly and has significant diplomatic and economic investment behind it. The question is, you asked, what do you mean by we? What do we mean when we say a commitment to multilateralism? Does that simply mean a commitment to a group of governments sitting in a room and deciding what they think is best? Mm. Or do we mean a commitment to a system of multilateralism that is built on core human rights documents, on engagement with experts, on bringing in affected communities, and on looking at how to see justice for victims of violations. I think that's really the question here. And the Chinese that we see acting in the space of the Human Rights Council and other human rights systems in the UN is not a China that wants to leave the system or even really wants to destroy the system. We could arguably say that about the Trump administration right now. But it's a Chinese government that has an interest in remaking that system to serve its purposes better. On that note, again, this is a subject I am sure we will return to. But on that note, I would like to thank you all. Meg Davis, China Watcher from Geneva's Graduate Institute. Sarah Brooks of the International Service for Human Rights. And, of course, Daniel Warner, our resident analyst. That's it for this week. Thank you all for listening. I'm Imogen Folks. This has been Inside Geneva, a Swissinfo.ch production. And a reminder just before you go that you can hear more episodes of the Inside Geneva podcast series, including an in-depth documentary on the United Nations at 75. To subscribe to Inside Geneva, just go to Swissinfo.ch forward slash ENG forward slash Inside Geneva. Join us again next time, and thank you all for listening. Discover science and innovation in Switzerland with the Swiss Connection podcast. In the current series, we visit CERN and explore what they're up to next in their quest to solve the mysteries of the universe. We uncover groundbreaking discoveries in a Roman archaeological site and get the first glimpse of an exciting supersonic plane powered by hydrogen. 
from the tiniest particles to the vastness of space, satisfy your scientific curiosity by listening to the Swiss Connection podcast for a mind-expanding experience with Swiss Info. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to follow or subscribe to get your latest episode on time.